It is probably the single most famous story in human history, at least in Western civilization. We all know it. It has powerful visual images like rain, flood, animals, a giant boat, a white dove, a rainbow, a simple but compelling plot, the complete destruction of the world and then a redemptive rebirth. The story of Noah and the flood predates even Jewish tradition. A similar story about a flood was included as part of the Epic of Gilgamesh, a Sumerian poem dating to about 2100 BCE, so long before the Bible. Because it's so universally well-known, it's hard to figure out what to talk about. Most Jewish interpretations around the story of Noah focus on his leadership style, or the theological explanations for God destroying the world, or the renewal of the covenant between God and humanity after the floodwaters receded, something like that. But I want to tell a different story about the flood. It's also partly a personal story. And no, for my birthright folks, it's not because I'm old enough to have actually been at the flood. Thanks for nothing, you guys. But I do want to tell you about how the story of Noah connects the Jewish people to another people with whom we today share a similar historical outlook. It's a story focused on the end of the biblical account, after all the action of the flood and the ark and the two-by-two animals. And although it's not really about the Jewish people, it's still a story that I think we all ought to know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. At the ripe old age of 600, uh, well, actually, now that I think about it for an earlier biblical character, 600 is actually pretty young. So, okay, at the young age of 600, and after floating on the waters of the flood for 150 days, Noah and his ark finally came to rest on dry land. So, first of all, yes, I said 150 days, not the 40 days and 40 nights that we all know. Now, it did rain for 40 days and 40 nights, but the flood itself lasted 150 days. And even after settling on land, Noah stayed on the ark for another several months to wait for the waters to completely recede. All in all, his whole adventure lasted about a year. In fact, the story of Noah is another one of those sections in the Bible where the same story is told twice, and often in contradiction. Unlike the first two chapters of Genesis, in which the creation story is told one after the other, for Noah, the two stories are actually intertwined. So, for instance, in one place, it tells us that Noah took two of every animal into the ark. I mean, this is, we're all familiar with that. But in another place, it also tells us that actually Noah took seven pairs of clean animals, two pairs of unclean animals, and seven pairs of birds. The length of the flood is also given different times. Now, there's some really interesting commentary to be had about these contradictions. But, like I said, uh, this is my podcast and I'll tell a different story if I want to. Anyway, Genesis tells us that at the end of the 150 days, Noah's Ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. So back in 2008, I wrote my master's thesis on the Armenian Genocide of 1915 and the American Jewish community's response. As a reward to myself for graduating, I took a trip to Armenia, and there I found myself at the bottom of Mount Ararat looking up at the largest mountain that I have ever seen. It isn't just its height, which is nearly 17,000 feet, but also its size. 
Mount Ararat is a massive, imposing, beautiful, dormant volcano that rises straight up out of a long, flat plain, and it looms over much of the country of Armenia. You don't look at it so much as experience looking at it, and it just it really left a, a big impression on me. The mountain itself is actually located in Turkey, and while Turkey and Armenia aren't at war, they're not really at peace either. So the closest I could get was to stand a few miles from the foothills, just across the border. It's really not hard to imagine how this mountain came to be associated with a sacred land from ancient times. This is where the Jewish story and the Armenian narrative connect. It goes like this. Stay with me for a second. So remember that we first had Adam as the original human. And Adam had three sons, Cain, Abel, and Seth, of whom Seth would go on to father the line of descendants that would lead to Noah. Okay, so Adam, then Seth, then on down the line, Noah. Noah also had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The Bible traces the Jewish lineage back to Shem, as he is the direct ancestor of Abraham, the first Jew. The Armenian tradition, however, traces their lineage to Japheth. So ultimately, the Jewish and Armenian peoples recognize a common ancestor in Noah. But this is far from the only parallel in our narratives. The father of Armenian history, I kid you not, his name was actually Moses, although he lived in the 5th century of the Common Era. Moses wrote an origin story of the Armenian people that isn't too different than the Jewish one. In Moses' story, he wrote that a man named Haik, a descendant of Japheth, rebelled against the leader of Babylon and then settled in the region around Mount Ararat. The Babylonian leader pursued him, there was a great battle, and Haik emerged victorious, making permanent his homeland in Ararat. Through this story, the Armenians connect themselves to the biblical narrative, establish themselves as fighters for freedom against tyranny, and claim the area around Mount Ararat as their natural historical homeland. It's not too difficult to imagine replacing Armenian with Jew in this story to understand the similarities in historical narrative and identity. In the same way that Armenians see Ararat as their ancient homeland and the mountain itself as its spiritual center and sacred symbol, we Jews also give ourselves a biblical origin around the land of Israel with Jerusalem at the center. You can substitute Ararat with the promised land. In fact, Mount Ararat is one of the few places outside of Israel to have retained its original Hebrew name. Although different names have been used to describe the area and the mountain itself, the Hebrew word Ararat continues in common usage today. But it isn't just this biblical connection to Noah that we share with the Armenians. Jewish history is filled with rebellions against tyranny and the fight for human freedom and justice, such as the story of Moses and the Exodus, or the Maccabees and Hanukkah. In fact, the rulers of Armenia during the 5th century actually compared themselves to the Maccabees in their own fight for religious freedom. And later, Armenian historians of the time put forth all these theories about a direct connection between the Jewish and Armenian traditions. And although these connections weren't historically true, the symbolism was really strong. The Armenian political experience also followed that of the Jewish one. We'll talk about the Jewish one in later episodes. Ancient Armenia, like ancient Israel, was strategically located at a political, military, and economic crossroad. As with ancient Israel, Armenia struggled to maintain its independence as warring empires crisscrossed Ararat. In fact, the Romans under Pompey crushed the Armenian Empire in the same campaign in the 1st century BCE in which they also captured Judea. 
In the year 301 of the Common Era, Armenia became the first nation to adopt Christianity, using that opportunity to further connect themselves to the Jewish tradition by declaring that they too were now the chosen people, going all the way back to Noah. Which brings me back to Mount Ararat. Although the Bible doesn't specify Mount Ararat today as the precise location of the Ark, rather the Bible says that the Ark landed on the mountains of Ararat, the fact that Ararat is by far the tallest of any nearby mountain, plus the sacred center of the ancient homeland, meant that people have considered it the landing zone of the Ark for millennia. There have been numerous explorations to find the Ark, but no trace has ever been credibly found, though when you visit the Armenian Orthodox Church in Eshmiadzin, Armenia, you can see a chunk of wood from the Ark, which is totally cool. And yet, although Mount Ararat is the sacred symbol of the Armenian people, it's not in Armenia. Armenia is a small country, it's about the size of Israel, but with about half the population, and you can see the mountain from a lot of places. It looms over Yerevan, the capital city, and you can see it from the one international airport nearby. It appears on stamps and the Armenian coat of arms, and the Armenians speak of Ararat in the same way that Jews speak of their connection to Jerusalem. There is even a version of Birthright Armenia. True. I've I've always wanted to staff this trip, so I haven't been on it, but I'm told there is more sleep and less hummus. Anyway, the reason why Ararat is no longer in Armenia speaks to another connection between Jews and Armenians, genocide. 30 years before the Holocaust, beginning in about 1915, over one and a half million Armenians were murdered under the auspices of the Ottoman Empire, which itself was collapsing in the death throes of World War I. Similar to the ways that Jews were a hated minority throughout Europe prior to World War II, the Christian Armenians often found themselves blamed and attacked by the surrounding Ottoman Muslim majority, beginning in the late 1800s. At the time, the Armenians lived in the region surrounding Mount Ararat, which today includes the nation of Armenia and also most of eastern Turkey. By the end of the genocide, the Armenians of Turkey had either been murdered, pushed into a much smaller nation of Armenia, or fled abroad, primarily to the United States and especially to California. In fact, you probably know or have Armenian friends. And if you do, they are probably Western Armenians, descendants of families who died in the genocide or a survivor who fled to the United States. And there's a very easy way to tell if your friend is Armenian. If their last name ends in I-A-N or Y-A-N, they are probably Armenian. So feel free to ask. And of course, you can tell them all about this podcast episode. And actually, funny side story, which uh, relates to our present story because it's about a Jew, uh, me, in Armenia and actually right at the airport underneath Mount Ararat. Uh, anyway, my middle name is actually Ian, I-A-N. So when I went to Armenia, my passport, which says Jason Ian Harris, caused a lot of confusion. Uh, at the airport with the customs guys and at the hotel and just everywhere I went. They kept calling me Harris Jasonian because they thought that Harris was my first name and Jasonian my last name. And therefore they assumed that I spoke Armenian, which I don't. I mean, yes, other M, which means I am not Armenian. Or at least, I mean, that's what they told me it means. So this is all a much bigger story. Trust me, I had to write an entire thesis about it. And it's killing me to sit here and to tell it so quickly because I could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. But at the end of the day, 
I feel a personal connection to the story of Noah and the flood because I've been to Ararat, I've seen the mountain of Noah, and I've gotten to know the Armenian people and their history. I recognize the powerful connection between their narrative and the Jewish one. For nearly 2,000 years, we Jews developed a grand culture and tradition around our ancient homeland in Israel. And it wasn't until 1967 that we were able to access and live freely in the sacred center of our promised land, Jerusalem. Today, Mount Ararat, the Armenian people's most sacred national symbol, the landing place of Noah's Ark, the holy mountain from which the Armenians consider themselves to have descended as the grandsons and granddaughters of Noah, it remains so close, but it's still just out of their reach. Okay, so I wonder if you will indulge me for a few more minutes to switch topics because there is one other post-flood story from Genesis that I want to tell. It's actually not the Tower of Babel, which does come next in the Hebrew Bible, but which I think we're all familiar enough with that I'm not going to cover it in this podcast. Instead, I want to explain for a few minutes about the seven laws of Noah, also called the Noahide laws. So if you think about where we are in the Jewish story, we are still pretty close to the beginning. We're a long ways off from receiving the Jewish law from God at Mount Sinai. That's like 15 podcast episodes from now, maybe more. So the question is then, at this point, what laws are governing humanity? After the floodwaters recede and Noah and his family come out of the ark, God promises that this whole sorry episode will never happen again. Never again will God try to kill all of humanity or its creatures. My bad. God reaffirms the covenant with humans by placing a bow in the clouds. This has come down to us as a rainbow. And God set it as a reminder for God, not for people, that this covenant exists and please don't kill the humans anymore. At this, records the Bible, Noah did what we would probably all do in this situation. He stripped naked, got drunk, and fell asleep in his tent. Yes, it really actually says it in the Bible. That's not even a paraphrase. But before passing out, God handed down to Noah seven laws intended for his children and all his descendants. So grab a pen and write these down. One, do not deny God. Two, do not blaspheme God. Three, do not murder. Four, do not engage in illicit sexual relations, especially with naked women bearing fruit. That's an inside joke from last episode. Five, do not steal. Six, do not eat from a live animal. And seven, make sure to establish a legal system to ensure obedience to the law. So these seven Noahide laws make for an interesting conundrum. Let's say you're not Jewish. The rabbis have said that someone who isn't Jewish isn't bound by Jewish law because the book of Deuteronomy states that God told Moses that Jewish law is given specifically to the Jews. This seems reasonable, right? If I'm not Jewish, why should I have to obey Jewish law? But if someone who isn't Jewish does decide to abide by Jewish law, that person is considered a righteous Gentile. This is one of the highest honors in Judaism. And today we apply that name of a righteous Gentile to someone who rescued Jews during the Holocaust. On the other hand, the rabbis argued that Deuteronomy also instructed Moses to ensure that everyone obey at least the seven Noahide laws since God gave them to the sons of Noah and his ancestors, which is all of humanity. 
In other words, whether you're Jewish or not, you have to follow the seven laws I just listed because they stand technically apart from Jewish law. This is where we get that famous phrase, whoever sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed, since the punishment for violation of the Noahide laws is death. But don't freak out. This whole argument is mostly academic. We have no records of the rabbis or any Jewish court system in history using the Noahide laws instead of the regular Jewish laws. No non-Jews have ever been punished under the Noahide laws. And today, the rabbis don't really consider them to be part of the compendium of Jewish law anyway. But it doesn't mean that they aren't important. Many leaders have considered the Noahide laws to be, and let me quote one of them, the historical tradition of ethical values and principles, which have been the bedrock of society from the dawn of civilization. That was written in 1987 by Ronald Reagan. Okay, well, moving right along through the book of Genesis, coming up on chapter 12. We are leaving the realm of ancient creation myths and getting into the story of the Jewish forefathers and foremothers. We will spend at least the next couple of episodes telling the story of the life of Abraham, the first Jew. Talk to you then. <laughs>